Friends, have you ever had that feeling, and it's really a feeling of relief that washes over you, that feeling when you've been caught in a bit of a mess for quite a long time. You're stuck in a situation where you really just cannot see any way out, and then eventually along comes a person who can not only help you, but who does help you. It's like when you've been sitting on the phone for hours, you know, on one of those helplines to the tax office or Centrelink or your bank or some government agency and, you know, you've been there for ages and they just shunt you from one department to the next and you listen to music and no one wants to talk to you, no one seems interested in in owning your problem and finally you get someone on the phone and they actually know what you're talking about and they own your problem for themselves and they take the time to help sort you out. Is that not a great feeling? To finally find someone who's interested in you and the sense of relief and joy that comes from that is wonderful. Now, friends, in a very real way, that is exactly what you and I should be feeling every time we read through Mark's Gospel and especially the first half of Mark's Gospel because, you see, in the first eight chapters, uh, they introduce us to a person who has enormous authority. They introduce us to a person who has breathtaking power and remarkable wisdom, and yet despite the bigness and the majesty of this person, they are actually also interested in us, and they are willing to help us in the deepest problems of our life. And so as you work your way through Mark's Gospel, that sense of relief and joy and reassurance of finding someone who actually cares and wants to help you, That sort of feeling should increase more and more and more as each chapter goes by. Last week, you might remember, we made a start on Mark's Gospel, and I suggested that one way of thinking about the pattern of the whole book was that it consisted of a big build-up about who Jesus is, and it's followed by a big surprise about who Jesus is. Now, I've actually put it on a slide this week to help us see this. That's Mark's Gospel in very basic outline. You've got eight chapters that are essentially this prolonged build-up about just who this Jesus is and what it is that he's capable of. And then in chapter 8, you get a very unexpected twist. Well, at least it would be very unexpected if you were reading it for the first time. But you get a very big surprise about who Jesus is, and that surprise dominates the second half of the book. Now, that's Mark's gospel in a nutshell. You get a big build-up then a big surprise. And last week we sort of saw how you got a mini version of that in just the opening few verses. Remember, you got that big build-up of all the Old Testament references and then the big surprise when Jesus disappears for a month into the wilderness to uh, be tempted by Satan. Friends, this morning we're going to move past the introduction that we looked at last week and we're going to dip our toe into that first big section, chapters 1 to 8. That's the section where Mark sets about the task of giving, this, giving us this very detailed build-up as to just who Jesus is and what it is that he's capable of. And what you find in this first section is that Mark is very deliberate in the way he goes about putting things together. Mark is a good writer. He doesn't just write his gospel in a higgity-piggity way. You know, it's not just a blind sort of, oh, well, this happened and then this happened. Oh, yeah, that's right, and then that, that followed there. Now, Mark is actually much more creative than that. 
He's a writer with purpose. He has lessons he wants us to see. And so he actually gathers and sifts and he groups the facts that he knows about Jesus very deliberately so as to create a developing picture of Jesus the further you read. It's a bit like a um, photograph developing. I know it's all digital nowadays, but back in the olden days when I used to do it, you know, you'd get a photographic paper and you'd sluice it around in developing a solution. And at first it just starts as a white piece of paper, but as it swishes around in the solution, you just see this faint outline, and then it sort of comes in more and more and more detail, and finally you get this really crisp, clean picture that hopefully you took in focus. Now that's Mark's gospel. In his introduction last week, after that, it's as if now Mark starts with a nice, clean piece of paper, and he starts to develop this picture of Jesus And as the further you read, it just gets clearer and clearer and bigger and bigger. That's what happens in the first eight chapters. We've seen the pattern of the whole book because here's the pattern of the first eight chapters. And basically, the chapters revolve around four clusters of miracles. See, the interesting thing about the first half of Mark's gospel is that when you read it, Jesus does heaps of miracles. Pretty well all the miracles Jesus does are confined to the first half of the book. But they don't occur evenly spaced out throughout these chapters. They occur in clumps. We get a lot of miracles happening and then not many miracles happen for ages. Then you get another clump of miracles and then not many happen for a while. And then you get another clump. Now interspersed between the clumps, you get stories about Jesus being rejected and facing hostility. And so you've got this, uh, this pattern this really interesting thing where you've got clumps of miracles occurring and the really interesting thing is that each clump of miracles teaches a central idea that's new about Jesus. In other words, in in each section of, of miracle, we discover something new about Jesus that makes him bigger and bigger and bigger. It really is like a, a photo developing in the solution. Let's quickly skip our way through and see. And we start out in the first clump, which is a series of miracles in chapters 1 and 2. And these basically involve healing diseases where Jesus goes around driving out demons. And these miracles, the first slot, they, they really do give a basic introduction to the fact that Jesus has great authority. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 27, you read, The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and one with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Now that's what the first clump of miracles does. It's sort of the basic groundwork. Jesus is a person with amazing authority. But then you go to a second clump of miracles. And what you notice there is that you get a whole bunch of miracles that revolve around the fact that Jesus is doing stuff that no other person has ever done before. And it's quite explicitly stated. Uh, This is where Jesus calms a storm, a storm in which experienced sailors didn't even think that they were going to survive. He heals a demon-possessed man, and we are specifically told that, quote, no one was strong enough to subdue him. He heals a sick woman, and we are specifically told, quote, that she'd seen lots of doctors, but instead of getting better, she was getting worse. See, Jesus is doing stuff that no one else has had any success with before. And we're specifically told that time and time again. And the whole thing climaxes with Jesus doing something that no one has ever done before. Despite everyone telling him not to even bother trying, 
He brings a little girl back from the dead. And this picture of Jesus has now gotten a lot bigger. Yes, Jesus is someone with authority, but now this second clump of miracles is telling us that he is someone with more authority than ever anyone else. And yet, tragically, he still gets ignored and and rejected by the uh, hierarchy. You then get a third clump of miracles, and this is where the focus falls on Jesus doing stuff that imitates God. This is where Jesus feeds 5,000 people uh, in an isolated place. And the words which Mark uses to describe the miracle conjures up images of God miraculously feeding Israel in the Old Testament wilderness. This is where Jesus walks on water, which is something that is said of God himself in Job chapter 9. Jesus even, a few points, talks about himself to his disciples in language which is very reminiscent of the way God talks about himself uh, in the Old Testament, especially at the burning bush to Moses. And so what's happening in Mark's gospel is that the balloon is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus is doing miracles. Hey, he's doing miracles that no one else has ever done before. Hey, he's doing miracles that only God has done in the past. The picture of Jesus is now enormous. Here is a person who doesn't just have authority. Here is a person who doesn't just have more authority than other people. Here is a person who has the authority of God himself, who can do things God can do. And all the time at every layer, as the picture gets clearer, you still have the tragedy of people rejecting him. Just very sad because of what they're missing out on. Anyway, finally we reach the fourth clump of miracles. I'll slow down a little bit here because this is the section that we read from earlier. And it's a climactic section, believe it or not. This is the section with a strange sort of conversation, you know, the one about children eating bread and dogs eating the crumbs. All a bit weird. But the key for us to see here is that Jesus is doing and saying these things in Gentile country. Now, you see, in the world where Jesus moved, there were two categories of people. There was a Jew, you were either a Jew or a Gentile. You had to be one or the other. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile by definition. Most of us here, I dare say, we're Gentiles. The Jews despise Gentiles. Despise them. Because, you see, national Israel back then had become very big-headed very big sorry, about being chosen as God's people. They forgot that originally they'd been chosen as God's people so as to be a light to all the nations, so as to bring blessings to the Gentiles. And so by the time Jesus comes along, this privilege of being God's people had become twisted into a self-righteous favoritism where Gentiles were looked down at with contempt. To the Jews at the time of Jesus, Gentiles were nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. Radical Jews discouraged helping a Gentile mother during labour because they argue that it would simply bring another Gentile into the world, and who wants that? If a Jew married a Gentile, the family would hold a funeral. Orthodox Jews still do. For marriage to a Gentile is the equivalent of dying. Now look with me at our reading earlier on. Chapter 7. We actually got there. Chapter 7, 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. 
He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now Mark, in those verses, is going to a bit of detail to drum home some, some points, isn't it? He is in the vicinity of Tyre. He's talking to a Greek woman born in Syrian Phoenicia. There are clues here. Jesus has actually moved out of Israel into Gentile country. He is roaming around in unclean Gentile country, spending time with pagans. Verse 26. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Well, first let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it's not right to take the children's bread, toss it to the dogs. Funny sort of interchange, this, isn't it? Uh, Jesus almost sounds rude. He almost sounds being deliberately elusive. Well, in one sense he is, because he's want to make, he wants to make a point here. For you see, the Jews consider themselves as children. That's how they refer to themselves, God's children, God's chosen nation. Their term of endearment for Gentiles was dogs. It's a bit like nowadays, you know, when the state of origin's on and you talk to someone and you call them a cane toad, everyone knows that that means that they're a Queenslander. Well, a Jew calling someone a dog, that means you're, they're referring to a Gentile. And so with that in mind, what Jesus is saying here is that this Gentile woman needs to wait her turn before Israel, till after Israel, sorry. Let the children eat all they want, Jesus says. In other words, he's come firstly to minister to the Jews and only when he's completed that task will the Gentiles have the right to demand anything of him. Jews have priority. They are God's people, albeit faultingly. Now, on the surface, that's a pretty harsh answer, isn't it? But Jesus is saying it for a reason. He's testing this woman's attitude. He's testing to see if she understands what he's on about. And she does. 28. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Friends, it's a weird conversation, but that is a great response. She says, yep, uh, Jesus, you've got priority for the Jews. She realises, though, but that he is so great that his blessings are so abundant that even the dogs, even the Gentiles can benefit that in Jesus there is more than enough blessing to go around. Verse 29, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demons left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Imagine how she felt. Friends, that is a great verse. In its context, it's one of the most wonderful verses of Mark's gospel for those with eyes to see it because Jesus is bringing blessing to, an to a ceremonially unclean Gentile. And the lesson that we're meant to be seeing here is that now Jesus, there is no one outside the scope of his help. This is a Canaanite woman and Jesus has given her blessings. He can make even the foulest, clean. And you see, that point is now reinforced because he now goes about it, as you heard in the reading, he now goes about in Gentile country doing miracles. In fact, deliberately repeating miracles like the ones he's already done amongst the Jews. 
A couple of chapters earlier, he'd fed the, fa- the famous 5,000 people. But now did you notice uh, he, he, he feeds another 4,000 Gentiles? It's not the same miracle again. It's a different one repeated in Gentile country. And now cripples are walking, blind are seeing, the mute are speaking, and Jesus is bringing to Gentile country the same blessings that he's performed in Jewish country. And friends, for, for those with eyes to see, it's telling us that Jesus has come to bring blessing to anyone and everyone. You don't have to be a Jew. And it's with that wonderful lesson that the picture of Jesus reaches previously unheard of proportions. Miracles no one else can do. Miracles only God can do. And now miracles for anyone. He is breaking the bounds of Israel. The Son of God has come. And he has not just come for Israel. Friends, he's come for us all. And with that staggering truth, the first half of Mark's gospel draws to a close. And that feeling which I talked about from the start, that feeling of relief when someone comes along to help you out of a problem, by this stage of Mark's gospel, that that feeling ought to be flooding over us all. Because as I mentioned earlier, we're all Gentiles here. We're like the Canaanite woman. We have no claim on God whatsoever. At this point in history, we were, Gentiles were outside the promises of God. We deserve nothing. But in Jesus, God's blessing can come even to us. Despite all the stuff we've done wrong, despite the mistakes and the sins, despite the way we've messed up our life time and time again, despite what we've done and despite how many times we've done it, Jesus is here and he can help. Heck, he can bring blessings to even us. Some of you may know that uh, we own a very old uh, pop-up camper trailer which we've dragged around Australia for a few holidays. And the biggest holiday that we ever had was when uh, I took some long service leave and we went up to Darwin and around to Broome and back to, down to Perth and then all the way back home. And as we were getting ready for that holiday, my, my biggest nightmare was always that the camper trailer wouldn't make it, that it would somehow break down along the way. And if you've ever seen our camper trailer, you know that that's not, that's not an irrational fear at all. Now, the worst variation of my fear, my worst nightmare, was that the van would break down in the middle of the Nullarbor Plain and that the winding mechanism that pops the van up, that that would snap. That was the fear that kept me awake at nights. Here we are on holidays, second night on the Nullarbor Plain, in a wind-swept caravan park. You'll never guess what happened. The winding mechanism snapped. Couldn't get the van up. Now, I'm an anxious sort of person, and to say I panicked would be putting it mildly. I was beside myself with anxiety because this was my worst nightmare, and it's happened. And you talk to Sue, I am no Mr. Fix-It. I had no idea how to fix that. And you cannot believe what it meant to me when a bloke in the van next door wandered over and casually said, Hmm, things don't look real good here, do they? Mind if I have a look? I'm an engineer. I reckon I can fix that for you. And with that, this guy 
crawled under the van with a pair of pliers and a wire coat hanger and me under there with moral support. <laughs> and he fixed it. And you could not, words can, could not describe the gratitude, the relief, the absolute sense of deliverance that I felt at that moment. That's nothing compared to the way we ought to be feeling about Jesus by the time you hit the halfway mark in Mark's gospel. Here is someone with amazing authority. Here is someone with more authority than anyone has ever seen before. Here is someone with the authority of God himself. And he steps up to Gentiles like us and says, look, things between you and God aren't really good, are they? I can help. You don't deserve God's blessings. You don't deserve to get into heaven. But I can fix that. And in the second half of the book, that's what he's going to do. He's going to fix it. Mind you, the way he fixes it, there's one almighty surprise in that. But that's the second half of the book. We'll get to that next week. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for the amazing authority and generosity of your son, Jesus. He truly is king and saviour. He truly is worthy of all praise. Father, thank you that your son, Jesus, came not just for Israel, but to bring blessings to all of us. And Father, here we are on the other side of the world, hundreds of years later, and we have your blessing through Jesus. Father, we praise you for him. We give you thanks for him. There is no other name that is worthy of the praise of your son. Thank you, Father. Pray it in his wonderful name. Amen.